Section 12 of The Confidence Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by M.B. The Confidence Man, His Masquerade by Herman Melville. Chapter 23. In which the powerful effect of natural scenery is evinced in the case of the Missourian, who, in view of the region round about Cairo, has a return of his chilly fit. At Cairo, the old established firm of fever and ague is still settling up its unfinished business. That creole gravedigger, Yellow Jack, his hand at the mattock and spade has not lost its cunning, while Don Saturninus Typhus, taking his constitutional with death, Calvin Edson, and three undertakers, in the morass, snuffs up the mephitic breeze with zest. In the dank twilight fanned with mosquitoes and sparkling with fireflies, the boat now lies before Cairo. She has landed certain passengers and tarries for the coming of expected ones. Leaning over the rail on the inshore side, the Missourian eyes through dubious medium that swampy and squalid domain, and over it audibly mumbles his cynical mind to himself, as Appermantus' dog may have mumbled his bone. He bethinks him that the man with the brass plate was to land on this villainous bank, and for that cause, if no other, begins to suspect him. Like one beginning to rouse himself from a dose of chloroform treacherously given, he half divines, too, that he, the philosopher, had unwittingly been betrayed into being an unphilosophical dupe. To what vicissitudes of light and shade is man subject? He ponders the mystery of human subjectivity in general. He thinks he perceives with crossbones his favorite author that, as one may wake up well in the morning, very well indeed, and brisk as a buck, I thank you, but ere bedtime get under the weather, there is no telling how. So one may wake up, wise and very slow of ascent, very slow and very wise, I assure you, and for all that, before night, by like trick in the atmosphere, be left in the lurch a ninny. Health and wisdom equally precious, and equally little as unfluctuating possessions to be relied on. But where was slipped in the entering wedge? Philosophy, knowledge, experience, were those trusty knights of the castle recreant? No, but unbeknown to them the enemy stole on the castle's south side, its genial one, where suspicion, the warder, parleyed. In fine, his too indulgent, too artless and companionable nature betrayed him. Admonished by which, he thinks he must be a little splenetic in his intercourse henceforth. He revolves the crafty process of sociable chat, by which, as he fancies, the man with the brass plate wormed into him, and made such a fool of him as insensibly to persuade him to waive, in his exceptional case, that general law of distrust systematically applied to the race. He revolves, but cannot comprehend, the operation, still less the operator. Was the man a trickster, it must be more for the love than the lucre. Two or three dirty dollars the motive to so many nice wiles? And yet, how full of mean needs his seeming! Before his mental vision, the person of that threadbare Talleyrand that impoverished Machiavelli, 
that seedy Rosicrucian, for something of all these he vaguely deems him, passes now in puzzled review. Fain in his disfavor would he make out a logical case. The doctrine of analogies recurs. Fallacious enough doctrine when wielded against one's prejudices, but in corroboration of cherished suspicions not without likelihood. Analogically, he couples the slanting cut of the equivocator's coat-tails with the sinister cast in his eye. He weighs Slyboot's sleek speech in the light imparted by the oblique import of the smooth slope of his worn boot-heels. The insinuator's undulating flunkeyisms dovetail into those of the flunky beast that windeth his way on his belly. From these uncordial reveries he is roused by a cordial slap on the shoulder, accompanied by a spicy volume of tobacco smoke, out of which came a voice sweet as a seraph's. A penny for your thoughts, my fine fellow. Chapter 24 A philanthropist undertakes to convert a misanthrope, but does not get beyond confuting him. Hands off! cried the bachelor involuntarily covering dejection with moroseness. Hands off? That sort of label won't do in our fair. Whoever in our fair has fine feelings loves to feel the nap of fine cloth, especially when a fine fellow wears it. And who of my fine fellow species may you be? From the Brazils, ain't you? Toucan fowl. Fine feathers on foul meat. This ungentle mention of the toucan was not improbably suggested by the party-hued and rather plumagey aspect of the stranger, no bigot, it would seem, but a liberalist in dress, and whose wardrobe, almost anywhere then on the liberal Mississippi, used to all sorts of fantastic informalities, might, even to observers less critical than the bachelor, have looked, if anything, a little out of the common but not more so perhaps than considering the bear and raccoon costume the bachelor's own appearance in short the stranger sported a vesture barred with various hues that of the cochineal predominating in style participating of a highland plaid emir's robe and french blouse from its plated sort of front peeped glimpses of a flowered regatta shirt while for the rest white trousers of ample duck flowed over maroon-colored slippers, and a jaunty smoking-cap of regal purple crowned him off at top. King of traveled good fellows, evidently. Grotesque as all was, nothing looked stiff or unused. All showed signs of easy service, the least wonted thing setting like a wonted glove. That genial hand, which had just been laid on the ungenial shoulder, was now carelessly thrust down before him, sailor-fashion, into a sort of Indian belt, confining the redundant vesture. The other held, by its long, bright cherry-stem, a Nuremberg pipe in blast, its great porcelain bowl painted in miniature with linked crests and arms of interlinked nations, a florid show. As by subtle saturations of its mellowing essence the tobacco had ripened the bowl, so it looked as if something similar of the interior spirit came rosily out on the cheek. But rosy pipe-bowl or rosy countenance, all was lost on that unrosy man the bachelor, 
who, waiting a moment till the commotion caused by the boat's renewed progress had a little abated, thus continued. Hark ye, jeeringly eyeing the cap and belt, did you ever see Signor Marzetti in the African pantomime? No. Good performer? Excellent. Plays the intelligent ape till he seems it. With such naturalness can a being endowed with an immortal spirit enter into that of a monkey. But where's your tale? In the pantomime, Marzetti, no hypocrite in his monkery, prides himself on that. The stranger, now at rest, sideways and genially on one hip, his right leg cavalierly crossed before the other, the toe of his vertical slipper pointed easily down on deck, whiffed out a long, leisurely sort of indifferent and charitable puff, betokening him more or less of the mature man of the world, a character which, like its opposite, the sincere Christians, is not always swift to take offence, and then, drawing near, still smoking, again laid his hand, this time with mild impressiveness, on the ursine shoulder, and not unamiably said, that in your address there is a sufficiency of the fortiter in re, few unbiased observers will question, but that this is duly attempered with the suaviter in modo may admit, I think, of an honest doubt. My dear fellow, beaming his eyes full upon him, what injury have I done you that you should receive my greeting with a curtailed civility? Off hands! once more shaking the friendly member from him. Who in the name of the great chimpanzee in whose likeness you, Marzetti, and the other chatterers are made, who in thunder are you? A cosmopolitan, a Catholic man, who, being such, ties himself to no narrow tailor or teacher, but federates, in heart as in costume, something of the various gallantries of men under various suns. Oh, one roams not over the gallant globe in vain. Bred by it is a fraternal and fusing feeling. No man is a stranger. You accost anybody. Warm and confiding, you wait not for measured advances. And though, indeed, mine, in this instance, have met with no very hilarious encouragement, yet the principle of a true citizen of the world is still to return good for ill. My dear fellow, tell me how I can serve you. By dispatching yourself, Mr. Popinjay of the world, into the heart of the lunar mountains. You are another of them. Out of my sight. Is the sight of humanity so very disagreeable to you, then? Ah, I may be foolish, but for my part, in all its aspects, I love it. Served up a la pole or a la mort, a la ladron or a la yankee, that good dish man still delights me. Or rather is man a wine I never weary of comparing and sipping. Wherefore am I a pledged cosmopolitan, a sort of London dock vault connoisseur, going about from Tehran to Natchitoches, a taster of races? In all his vintages, smacking my lips over this racy creature man continually, but as there are teetotal palates which have a distaste even for Amontillado, so I suppose there may be teetotal souls which relish not even the very best brands of humanity. Excuse me, but it just occurs to me that you, my dear fellow, possibly lead a solitary life. Solitary? 
starting as at a touch of divination. Yes, in a solitary life one insensibly contracts oddities. Uh, talking to oneself now. Been eavesdropping, eh? Why, a soliloquist in a crowd can hardly but be overheard, and without much reproach to the hearer. You are an eavesdropper! Well, be it so. Confess yourself an eavesdropper! I confess that when you were muttering here, I, passing by, caught a word or two, and, by like chance, something previous of your chat with the intelligence office man. A rather sensible fellow, by the way. Much of my style of thinking. Would for his own sake he were of my style of dress. Grief to good minds to see a man of superior sense forced to hide his light under the bushel of an inferior coat. Well, from what I heard, I said to myself, here now is one with the unprofitable philosophy of disesteem for man. Which disease in the main I have observed, excuse me, to spring from a certain lowness, if not sourness, of spirits inseparable from sequestration. Trust me, one had better mix in and do like others. Sad business, this holding out against having a good time. Life is a picnic en costume. One must take a part, assume a character, stand ready in a sensible way to play the fool. To come in plain clothes with a long face as a wiseacre only makes one a discomfort to himself and a blot upon the scene. Like your jug of cold water among the wine flasks, it leaves you unelated among the elated ones. No, no, this austerity won't do. Let me tell you, too, en confiance, that while revelry may not always merge into ebriety, soberness in too deep potations may become a sort of sottishness, which sober sottishness, in my way of thinking, is only to be cured by beginning at the other end of the horn, to tipple a little. Pray, what society of vintners and old topers are you hired to lecture for? I fear I did not give my meaning clearly. A little story may help. The story of the worthy old woman of Goshen, a very moral old woman who wouldn't let her shoats eat fattening apples in fall, for fear the fruit might ferment upon their brains and so make them swinish. Now, during a green Christmas, inauspicious to the old, this worthy old woman fell into a moping decline, took to her bed no appetite, and refused to see her best friends. In much concern her good man sounded out for the doctor, who, after seeing the patient and putting a question or two, beckoned the husband out and said, Deacon, do you want her cured? Indeed I do. Go directly, then, and buy a jug of Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz? My wife drinks Santa Cruz? Either that or die. But how much? As much as she can get down. But she'll get drunk. That's the cure. Wise men, like doctors, must be obeyed. Much against the grain, the sober deacon got the unsober medicine, and, equally against her conscience, the poor old woman took it. But by doing so, ere long recovered health and spirits, famous appetite, and glad again to see her friends. And having by this experience broken the ice of arid abstinence, never afterwards kept herself a cup too low. This story had the effect of surprising the bachelor into interest, though hardly into approval. 
if i take your parable right said he sinking no little of his former churlishness the meaning is that one cannot enjoy life with gusto unless he renounce the too sober view of life but since the too sober view is doubtless nearer true than the too drunken i who rate truth though cold water above untruth though tokay will stick to my earthen jug i see slowly spurting upward a spiral staircase of lazy smoke i see you go in for the lofty how oh nothing but if i wasn't afraid of prosing i might tell another story about an old boot in a pieman's loft contracting there between sun and oven an unseemly dry-seasoned curl and warp you've seen such leathery old garretteers haven't you very high sober solitary philosophic grand old boots indeed but i for my part would rather be the pieman's trodden slipper on the ground talking of pieman humble pie before proud cake for me this notion of being lone and lofty is a sad mistake men i hold in this respect to be like roosters the one that betakes himself to a lone and lofty perch is the henpecked one or the one that has the pip you are abusive cried the bachelor evidently touched who is abused you or the race you won't stand by and see the human race abused oh then you have some respect for the human race i i have some respect for myself with a lip not so firm as before and what race may you belong to now don't you see my dear fellow in what inconsistencies one involves himself by affecting disesteem for men to a charm my little stratagem succeeded come come think the better of it and as a first step to a new mind give up solitude i fear by the way that you have at some time been reading zimmerman that old mr megrims of a zimmerman whose book on solitude is as vain as hume's on suicide as bacon's on knowledge and like these will betray him who seeks to steer soul and body by it like a false religion all they be they what boasted ones you please who to the yearning of our kind after a founded rule of content offer aught not in the spirit of fellowly gladness based on due confidence in what is above away with them for poor dupes or still poorer impostors his manner here was so earnest that scarcely an auditor perhaps but would have been more or less impressed by it while possibly nervous opponents might have a little quailed under it thinking within himself a moment the bachelor replied had you experience you would know that your tippling theory take it in what sense you will is poor as any other and rabelais's pro-wine koran no more trustworthy than mohammed's anti-wine one enough for a finality knocking the ashes from his pipe we talk and keep talking and still stand where we did what do you say for a walk my arm and let's a turn they are to have dancing on the hurricane deck tonight i shall fling them off a scotch jig while to save the pieces you hold my loose change and following that i propose to you my dear fellow stack your gun and throw your bearskins in a sailor's hornpipe i holding your watch what do you say at this proposition the other was himself again all raccoon look you thumping down his rifle are you jeremy diddler number three jeremy diddler i have heard of jeremy the prophet 
and Jeremy Taylor the divine, but your other Jeremy is a gentleman I am unacquainted with. You are his confidential clerk, aren't you? Whose, pray? Not that I think myself unworthy of being confided in, but I don't understand. You are another of them. Somehow I meet with the most extraordinary metaphysical scamps today. Sort of visitation of them. And yet that herb-doctor diddler somehow takes off the raw edge of the diddlers that come after him. Herb-doctor? Who is he? Like you, another of them. Who? Then, drawing near as if for a good long explanatory chat, his left hand spread, and his pipe-stem coming crosswise down upon it like a ferrule. You think amiss of me. Now, to undeceive you, I will just enter into a little argument, and— No, you don't. No more little arguments for me. Had too many little arguments today. But put a case. Can you deny, I dare you to deny, that the man leading a solitary life is peculiarly exposed to the sorriest misconceptions touching strangers? Yes, I do deny it, again in his impulsiveness snapping at the controversial bait. And I will confute you there in a trice. Look, you! Now, 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 my dear fellow, thrusting out both vertical palms for double shields, you crowd me too hard. You don't give one a chance. Say what you will, to shun a social proposition like mine, to shun society in any way, evinces a churlish nature, cold, loveless. As to embrace it shows one warm and friendly, in fact, sunshiny. Here the other, all agog again in his perverse way, launched forth into the unkindest references to deaf old worldlings, keeping in the deafening world, and gouty gluttons limping to their gouty gormandizings, and corseted coquettes clasping their corseted cavaliers in the waltz, all for disinterested society's sake, and thousands, bankrupt through lavishness, ruining themselves out of pure love of the sweet company of man, no envies, rivalries, or other unhandsome motive to it. Ah, now, deprecating with his pipe, irony is so unjust. Never could abide irony. Something satanic about irony. God defend me from irony, and satire his bosom friend. A right knave's prayer, and a right fool's, too, snapping his rifle lock. Now be frank. Oh, that was a little gratuitous. But no, no, you don't mean it anyway. I can make allowances. Ah, oh, but did you know it? How much pleasanter to puff at this philanthropic pipe than still to keep fumbling at that misanthropic rifle. As for your worldling, glutton, and coquette, though doubtless being such, they may have their little foibles, as who has not. Yet not one of these three can be reproached with that awful sin of shunning society. Awful, I call it, for not seldom it presupposes a still darker thing than itself, remorse. Remorse drives man away from man? How came your fellow-creature Cain, after the first murder, to go and build the first city? And why is it that the modern Cain dreads nothing so much as solitary confinement? My dear fellow, you get excited. Say what you will. I, for one, must have my fellow-creatures round me. Thick, too. I must have them thick. The pickpocket, too, loves to have his fellow-creatures round him. Tut, man! 
no one goes into the crowd but for his end and the end of too many is the same as the pickpockets a purse now my dear fellow how can you have the conscience to say that when it is as much according to natural law that men are social as sheep gregarious but i grant that in being social each man has his end do you upon the strength of that do you yourself i say mix with man now immediately and be your end a more genial philosophy come let's take a turn again he offered his fraternal arm but the bachelor once more flung it off and raising his rifle in energetic invocation cried now the high constable catch and confound all knaves in towns and rats in grain bins and if in this boat which is a human grain bin for the time any sly smooth philandering rat be dodging now pin him thou high rat catcher against this rail a noble burst shows you at heart a trump and when it cards that little matters it whether it be spade or diamond you are good wine that to be still better only needs a shaking up come let's agree that we'll to new orleans and there embark for london i staying with my friends nigh primrose hill and you putting up at the piazza covent garden piazza covent garden for tell me since you will not be a disciple to the full tell me was not that humor of diogenes which led him to live a merry andrew in the flower market better than that of the less wise athenian which made him a skulking scarecrow in pine barrens an injudicious gentleman lord timon your hand seizing it bless me how cordial a squeeze it is agreed that we shall be brothers then as so much as a brace of misanthropes can be with another and terrific squeeze i had thought that the moderns had degenerated beneath the capacity of misanthropy rejoiced though in but one instance and that disguised to be undeceived the other stared in blank amaze won't do you are diogenes diogenes in disguise i say diogenes masquerading as a cosmopolitan with a ruefully altered mien the stranger still stood mute a while at length in a pained tone spoke how hard the lot of that pleader who in his zeal conceding too much is taken to belong to a side which he but labors however ineffectually to convert then with another change of air to you an ishmael disguising in sportiveness my intent i came ambassador from the human race charged with an assurance that for your mislike they bore no answering grudge but sought to conciliate accord between you and them yet you take me not for the honest envoy but i know not what sort of unheard-of spy sir he less lowly added this mistaking of your man should teach you how you may mistake all men for god's sake laying both hands upon him get you confidence see how distrust has duped you i diogenes i he who going a step beyond misanthropy was less a man-hater than a man-hooter better were i stark and stiff with which the philanthropist moved away less lightsome than he had come leaving the discomfited misanthrope to the solitude he held so sapient 
End of section 12.